Hello and welcome to season four of the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In late 2017, Harvard Westlake acquired 17 acres of flat land in Studio City with the aspiration of building a third campus. More than five years later, the project, now known as Harvard Westlake River Park, is potentially within months of gaining approval within the city of Los Angeles. To help provide insights into the project's features is today's guest, Harvard Westlake CFO and River Park project lead, David Wheel. In this episode, David speaks in detail about not only River Park's unique benefits to the health and well-being of Harvard Westlake students, but also how the project will impact both the local community and natural environment, including the largest investments in environmental sustainability the school has ever undertaken. As Harvard Westlake's chief financial officer, David also speaks about managing a $100 million financial operation and how the school has managed to increase faculty and staff compensation at a higher rate than tuition for five consecutive years, a feat that should not be financially possible, but that David has helped make so. Lastly, David speaks about his own Harvard, Harvard Westlake, and Pomona College experiences, and how the lessons of team sports have not only impacted him personally, but also make him the ideal leader for a community-centered athletic and recreational facility like River Park. David Wheel on fields, finances, and forging ahead with the next giant step in Harvard-Westlake history. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. Hey there, Eli. We are doing this in person, and this will be the first episode of uh, the next season of Supporting Cast. I want to pause and say that this is the first time this series has been an in-person interview since March of 2020, and Roy Choi, I think, in episode 12, and it's really great to see you actually in person. Yeah, it's wonderful to be sitting in the the booth and chatting face to face, and I'm I'm honored that I am the first of the return. Yes, yes, me too. Um, so thank you for being here. And, you know, speaking of the pandemic, obviously we had to go virtual the last several years because of the pandemic. We've been doing a check-in with guests at the top of every episode, kind of how are you doing? How is, how's your family doing? Of course, I care about that, David, and you and your family. But maybe aside from COVID-19, kind of how are you first week of January 2023? This is the the season in the business office when when we're moving, yeah. uh, but for really great reasons for the the future of the school. And what I mean by that is this is the core of our admission season, our re-enrollment process, our financial aid process. All of those are areas in which the business office is involved. And so we're rolling, which is which is wonderful. Uh, we do enjoy it. Uh, personally, also doing quite well. My family and I are just coming off of a wonderful break and Spent a lot of time hiking, a lot of time at the beach, a lot of time cooking, made pretzels for the first time. Wow. And uh, turned out all right. So yeah, doing very well. Thanks. That's great to hear. And I know some of that budgeting process has to do with 
salaries and compensation. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the big challenges of your role, particularly in Los Angeles. And that's a topic I know I, I want to get to later. But first, I'd love to talk about River Park. Um, in addition to being the school's chief financial officer, you were the project lead of River Park, which is our third campus. What I want to start with first, where is River Park vis-a-vis -vis the upper school campus? Yeah, River Park is about, mm, as the crow flies, maybe a third of a mile away. You could walk in in about five minutes. So let's call it about a half a mile, uh, depending on what route you take to get there from the upper school campus located just on the other side of Ventura and one major block to the east of us. Got it. So you're coming down Coldwater. You have Harvard-Westlake on the right. You take a right on Ventura and just past Pins Bowling Alley. Yep, yep. Uh, it's down there on the I left. I think the appropriate reference is for Carnies for many of those who are listening. I right. spent many a, many a lunch period there. So yeah, That's you right. pass Carnies, you hang a left on Witsit, and the future site of River Park will be on your left-hand side. And right now it's Weddington Golf and Tennis. Right. And Weddington Golf and Tennis is sort of nine-hole executive golf course and tennis facility what will it be when it's River Park? Yeah, when it's uh, River Park, we are looking at a facility that is athletic and recreational centered. And so in that regard, it will have two fields, one of which has a, a six-lane track surrounding it, a gymnasium with two different bays, so you can have multiple court sports going at the same time, a uh, swimming pool, eight tennis courts, a clubhouse, which is existing, uh, mm -hmm. that we will preserve and use as a cafe and community gathering center, and enough parking so that we're able to keep all of our activities on site. And the parking will be subterranean, is yes, that right? Yes, subterranean. Yeah. So we've talked about River Park in kind of three ways, that it's good for Harvard-Westlake, of course, good for the Studio City community, and good for the environment. And that's the way I know me and my colleagues have thought about it. But I, I want to ask you about the project in that way, but I'd love to reverse the order, actually, because sometimes I think what Harvard-Westlake is doing for the environment with this project, sometimes we bury the lead there a little bit. How will River Park impact the environment? Yeah, uh, I, I can start with that, Eli, just by acknowledging what an incredible project this will be, how yeah. transformative it will be not just for Harvard-Westlake, as we'll talk about, but for the community, the city, really, in approaching a project in a ways that we have, as a school, not done before. And I, I really like how you have, have asked about those three pillars, mm -hmm. our school, our community, and the environment, but want to cover those in reverse order. Yeah. Because we believe that all too often out there that those two get second priority, right. or maybe even eliminate it altogether. So beginning with the environment, I think of, and we can talk about really any aspect of it that you'd like, but the three that come to my mind, the most prominent are around our scarce water resources as a city in Southern California, electricity use and energy use, and then finally, climate change overall. Yeah. And so in each of those areas, we have features that are designed to help demonstrate the potential for sustainable building. And so when it comes to water resources, we have this fantastic water reclamation system that will sit underneath the project site, mm. collecting water, such as the rain that we just experienced here in Southern California, yeah. and reuse that for landscaping. For solar, electricity, 
we'll have a solar array on top of the gymnasium that is going to generate the equivalent electricity of 24 homes around our trees and our landscaping plan, there will be a far greater percentage of the site covered by tree canopy with the implementation of our project as compared to what's there right now hmm. and sequestering carbon dioxide at a rate that is multiple times in excess of what's capable right now on the project site. But the really special part is that we're not just doing all of that and having it function in the background as part of operations. Each of those elements are going to be featured and can be experienced by a person who visits the site. We're actually working with a consulting company of the type that a museum might hire for an exhibit that's being installed. The whole experience behind what you learn and how you interact and the order in which you learn various items on a subject. We're installing that wow. at River Park so that you can learn about the history of water resources in the city of LA and the watershed in this area of the city and how the filtration system works and the types of volumes of water that are collected and then redistributed during a rainfall event. Something that's engaging for our students, of course, and our science programs, but anybody can experience. And as we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit later on, programs that we have with other schools to bring their students to learn about those very subjects. Yeah. So two follow-ups. So River Park in and of itself is a classroom. Absolutely. Uh, around sustainability. It is a living classroom in and of itself. Wow. And I guess it's also important to note that this is in comparison to what is there now. And despite folks who are listening who are golfers and who love golf and who might even love playing golf at Weddington, golf courses are not great for the environment. Is that safe to say? That is safe to say. Uh, this is a course that has been around since the 1950s. I've played there multiple times myself, but the course has not undergone a lot in the way of modern sustainable development. For example, unlike examples of golf courses that have reclamation systems for water that's sprayed on the fairways and greens, yeah. none of those improvements have been made at the existing golf uh -huh. course. And so right now, the course consumes a million gallons of water each and every month. Each wow. and every month, a million gallons of water. And that is a tremendous quantity just on its own. Yeah. But put that in the context of the worst drought in the history of the state of California, <laughs> and then layer in a million gallons of water each and every single month. It's an astounding figure. Our project, by comparison, will, just in landscaping, consume less than a third of that. Wow. And just so people get a sense of scope, it's around 16 acres. And, and how does that compare to the upper school or the middle school? Yeah, it's, it's approximately the same size as the upper school. Wow. A lot flatter yeah. for those of you who are used to taking the hike up and down yes. uh, from where we are sitting right now uh, all the way up to Chalmers and Seaver. But it is about the same size when you flatten it out. Amazing. So you mentioned Weddington Golf and Tennis. Obviously, it's been an institution in, in Studio City for many decades. There are community members and, and neighbors who are disappointed that it's changing, of course, and I think that's natural. But when we think about what the project is doing for the community, the local community, what are the types of examples that come to mind? I'll answer that in, in two different ways. The first is through formal partnerships that we have established and will continue to establish with organizations throughout Southern California. One of which, which is incredibly exciting, is a partnership with Friends of the LA River actually announced just today 
as we're recording this that will involve a collaboration between that organization that is focused on the health of our river systems within Los Angeles and education around them and have River Park be used as their valley home where there will be field trips from visiting students and a program for vocational education among high school students who are looking to enter fields related to the conservation of the environment. Hmm. Another example would be a partnership with Angel City Sports, where athletes with physical disabilities will be able to practice and pursue their sport. And so examples are things like wheelchair basketball, blind soccer. Wow. Um, so through those sorts of partnerships, this will be a much-loved and well-used campus open to the public. The other way I'd answer your original question, though, is just around general use of the site. And of those 16 acres you mentioned, it's actually a little bit more because we lease some land from the county of Los Angeles, which brings the total acreage of the project site closer to 17 acres. Got it. Of those 17 acres, approximately six are open, enjoyable outdoor areas. If you're interested in going on a stroll or sitting outside and reading a book or taking your dog on a walk, or want to jog, there's space for that. Mm -hmm. There's a three-quarter mile path that leads around the site adjacent to the river that you can enjoy. Sit and read a book, enjoy the shade. It's all available to you. Yeah. Within the site itself, though, if you're looking to get an actual organized sport, that's also open to the public via a reservation system. And just to clarify... The things we are doing in terms of having this be so accessible to the public, the things we are doing with the environment, these aren't requirements of Not the city of, of L.A. Not at all. Not at all. And, and it, you know, you, you asked that question, and it, it reminds me of something that we talked about very early on in the planning process. If you think about a school, a campus such as River Park, where we've already acknowledged that classes aren't going to be taking place from call it 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. on a daily basis during the school year. And if you think about that same campus on Saturdays and Sundays and in the late afternoon and evening hours, it's largely going to be vacant with our students and our programs. And early on, we recognize that that is, it's a wasted opportunity. Yeah. And why would it sit vacant? And wouldn't there be a better way to use those resources with our community members and the general public. And this is an example where we are building it from the ground up and we can design it in a way so that it specifically supports those joint uses. And that's what we're pursuing. Yeah. When you bring up joint uses, I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is this is a purpose beyond ourselves. We are supporting a community beyond ourselves. There's another reaction that a parent might have is that my child is practicing soccer over at River Park and right next door is a public park. Can you talk about some of the security features that will be there for a concerned parent, human resources and structural resources at the property? Sure. Much like our, our two campuses, middle and upper, yeah. River Park is going to be secured 24 hours a day, seven day a week. What I mean by that is, is through physical security personnel. There will always be a security team on site scaled according to whatever events are taking place sure. at that point in time. Other physical security measures that we have in place yeah. are that 
the campus is divided into two layers, an inner core where the specific athletic facilities are located and an outer core where that six acres of unprogrammed natural space exists. Yeah. And between those two layers is landscaping or hardscaping, fences, Mm -hmm. sections of wall. And so when different portions of the site are in use, there is the ability, for example, to keep those outside layers of six acres of park space open and used by anybody. And separate and, from our students. And separate. And you're not able to travel right. um, without going by a security guard or a gate. And one thing I often forget about River Park, there's a tip of the property that isn't ours because it's a fire station. Is yeah, that right? That's, right. that's, that's yeah. literally located yep. uh, contiguous to the property. Right? Yes. Yep. What a wonderful neighbor to have. Right? In the Amazing. form of uh, in the form of a fire just fire station, and have gotten to know a number of the personnel who who man that station, and uh, couldn't be happier to have them next door. Certainly, that will make any I think parent feel good. Absolutely, <laughs> about anything. Yeah. Hopefully, nothing ever goes wrong. But if something ever did, absolutely, uh, help is nearby. Yeah. So, lastly, support of Harvard Westlake students. Um, yeah. I, and I want it. There's the obvious notion of athletic excellence, right? That that greater facilities might lead better coaches to come our way, better students to come our way, lead our programs to be that much more successful. Because that's sort of an obvious feature of enhanced athletic facilities, can we talk about how this project might impact kind of student wellness as it relates to their time? I'm being a little bit vague, but I'd like you to kind of explain what the the mathematics were around how to create a little more time in the student's day via River Park. I think it's important to first recognize that approximately two-thirds of our students play at least one sport. Yeah. At Harvard Westlake. So we're not talking about a handful of our students to whom this would apply. We're talking about the great majority of our students who are affected by what I'm about to describe. Given our current facilities at the middle school, but mostly at the upper school here, which largely haven't changed over time. I'm a graduate of the school, as you're well aware, and that, that some may know who listen to this. Dating back well before I was a 12-year-old kid running around here in 1987, <laughs> our facilities haven't changed all that much. Yeah, they've been modernized, but we haven't increased them in number or in size. And what has happened over time, and that I know all too well our athletes today are experiencing, is that there's just simply not enough time to be with their team and get in the practice and conditioning and training that helps them be the athletes that they want to be and that they're capable of being. And so what happens in the absence of time or with time as a constraint is that practices get pushed later and later and later in the day. It's not at all uncommon for practices right now to begin at 6 or 6.30, in some cases even 7 o'clock at night. Wow. We looked at one of our athletics calendars. And more than 50%, more than 50% of our practices during an academic year are starting at least at 5.30 p.m. And as I mentioned, are often- Even later. Even later, yeah. Yeah. 
with the addition of these river park facilities, when we take that same athletics calendar that was suggesting practices that are going on until six, seven, eight o'clock or later at night, take that same calendar yeah. and overlay it with not only what we have on our campuses, but with what River Park will provide, there is not a single practice, not a single practice that needs to start after 5.30. So I'll go back and repeat something I said earlier. Yeah. At least half of our practices right now are starting after 5.30, at least half, and not a single practice needs to start after 5.30 with River Park Online. Wow. So, the, so, so to clarify, there, there are students, their day, their academic day is done. They're having to wait because practices are being stacked on the same field, right? You have yep. a lacrosse practice and then a soccer practice and then a boys' soccer practice. And because we have these additional facilities, people can all practice simultaneously, thus get home earlier, have dinner with their family, get some homework done, maybe get a little more sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you and I talk about those types of results. Yeah casually, get home earlier, have some downtime, eat dinner with their family, pursue other interests of theirs outside of what Harvard Westlake is able to provide. Sure. We talk about that casually. But the number of studies, scientific studies, that cannot emphasize the importance of those elements enough yeah. in the mental and physical health of adolescents is incredible. And so as a school, as an administrator, as a board of trustees, that is a critical aspect of what River Park will accomplish. Yeah. Yes, the facilities will be wonderful. Yes, the facilities will allow us to enjoy an environment that is designed specifically to be high performance and allow a team to reach its full potential. Absolutely. But just as important is the recovery. Yeah. We're talking about athletics, right? After all, yeah. one of the most important parts of engaging in physical exercise and athletics is the recovery. Yeah. This is just recovery on a scale that we cannot currently support. And that is not just a physical recovery when it comes to their sport, but is an actual mental, psychological, and physical recovery as they, they our students, pursue a more balanced approach to their day. Yeah. Before we finish with River Park, a practical question. Right now, as I understand, we've completed our environmental impact report. There's been a public comment period that has now completed. What happens now? When might we be able to get a shovel in the ground? And when might kids start playing on those fields? Those public comments that you mentioned, and you're right, it's, it's all part of a a city, a state required process yeah. for a project like this, all of the comments that were received during the comment period need to be answered. And it's the city's department of planning who is in the process of going through and answering those questions, addressing those concerns. Once that process has been completed, it generates what is called a final EIR. Mm -hmm. And it's our hope that the final EIR is done in the next few months. Mm -hmm. Once that has been circulated as part of the California Environmental Quality Act, there are then a series of public hearings that are also undertaken, initially beginning with the planning department as the people leading the process, but eventually culminating with the city council itself to vote on the project. It is our hope 
that that process is completed by this coming summer. And once that's done, we're then able to pursue building permits and start construction. And how long will construction take? Construction's estimated right now at just about 30 months, two and a half years. Okay. So if things go well with timing, we're looking at an opening of this River Park campus in very early 2026. Wow. Very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for those listening, by the way, who want to be involved, there will be emails, I'm sure, being sent about public hearings. If people want to show up and participate, speak on behalf of the project, there are folks at the school who who will sign you up to do so. You can also go on to hwriverpark.com and uh, endorse the project. That is not, by the way, a gift, a financial gift of the project. That's simply saying that you endorse it and, and writing your name and, and pushing yeah, a button. Absolutely. It's quite easy. Absolutely. And you mentioned showing up to public hearings and demonstrating through your own physical presence support for the project. That is also very welcome. And right. as you go to hwriverpark.com, there's an opportunity for you to type in uh, an interesting doing so. But you're, you're also correct, Eli, that there will be emails going out to our school community inviting participation like that. Yeah. And you can show up and not speak or speak, Absolutely. right? For those who are, are less inclined at public speaking. Yes. So in addition to being the project lead, of River Park. You have a pretty large job at Harvard West. I have a day job, yeah. You do. It's chief financial officer. We have a very large financial operation at Harvard Westlake. We are a very large independent school. It's enough of a job on its own. There are so many things we could talk about with regard to the school's finances. The one that continues to come up, I know, in so many conversations is how do we continue to increase compensation for faculty and staff? Right now we're at, I don't know, 7%, I think, inflation. This year, the cost of living in Los Angeles has skyrocketed, as we all know. 25 years ago, a faculty member could maybe buy a house in the Studio City area. Now it's much, much more difficult. What kind of pressure does that put on someone like you in balancing all of the inputs and outputs of a financial operation like Harvard-Westlake? How do you think about this and, and how do we try to accomplish this? Yeah, what, what kind of pressure it puts on me? The answer to that one is an easy one. It puts an awful lot of pressure. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, because as a school like ours, there is nothing more important than the, I'll refer to it as the, the, the marriage of very talented students with very talented employees, yeah. faculty and staff. To accomplish that on the employee side in a city like Los Angeles that you're absolutely right is is not the least expensive city within the lower 48. Yeah. It's it's difficult. I know that's not what you're asking for specifically, but I'm just trying to underscore the yeah. the challenge of what we face but also the importance of being successful as we try to overcome that challenge. Yeah. To put it in context, when we think about the school's operating budget, and, and by that I mean our expense side of the equation, our employees and the other line items that relate to employees like benefits and payroll taxes make up well more than half of every dollar that we spend within the budget. So to make considerable changes for employee compensation, we are attempting to affect the largest budgetary lever yeah. that we can come up with. And so the real key question behind what you're asking is, how do we make change to a line item that is that large and is that important to yeah. the future of the school with the revenue to help pay for it? <laughs> right. And there are really three drivers there. So of the three 
main sources of revenue that we have to achieve our goals with regards to employee compensation and benefits. The first is our endowment. Yeah. And we have been fortunate to see that grow over time as a result of market returns, certainly contributions, but in comparison to what we're looking to achieve with employee compensation and the affordability of living in Los Angeles, it's a relatively small contributor. Yeah. And let me pause on that point for a moment. Some people think of our endowment and they compare it to Ivy League University endowments. Uh, our endowment supports roughly 10% of our operations. Is that's that correct. Right. Yes, Unlike that's correct. A, a university, a famous university, someone might be thinking of where it could be 100% yeah. <laughs> or yeah. more in some cases yeah. uh, of the budget. Exactly. So approximately 10% there. A little bit higher than that, the second source is annual giving. Yes. And again, we have a very supportive community and contributions to annual giving have grown over the years, but is also a relatively small contributor to our revenue in comparison to what we're looking to achieve with employee compensation. Annual giving is about 11%. 11%, right? exactly. What's left over is tuition. Yeah. Tuition and fees covering what is more like 75% of all of our revenue sources. So when you think about those three, tuition, annual giving, and endowment, and even putting aside their, their relative sizes, only one of them is really within our direct control. As our board approves what we're doing with employee compensation, at that point of approval, we only have control over tuition. We have hope, we have support, we have deliberate thought towards additional annual giving contributions. We have a tremendous amount of thought, of course, that goes into our investment portfolio and the endowment uh, availment that it produces. Yes. But we really only have control over tuition. So when you think about it, if we want to make material progress with by far the largest expense category in the form of employee compensation and benefits, your only real source reliably is tuition. And you accelerate too fast, you've now introduced fairly quickly a burden on our families and their ability to enroll their children at Harvard-Westlake. In addition to support the school philanthropically. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the way most school models work over the long run is that whatever you're doing with regards to tuition in comparison to what you're doing with compensation, there's usually a 1% to 2% difference. If tuition is going to go up by, let's say, 5%, mm -hmm. you typically can only increase employee compensation by 4%. And that's because there are all sorts of other things that increase in our budget every year, like healthcare costs or exactly. other resources. Exactly. Utilities. Sure. Anyone who's looked at their utility bill recently knows that whether you've converted over to full electricity or you still have some gas appliances left, those rates aren't going up at 4 and 5%. They're going up at double that. Yeah. So you're right. Now, making material progress with employee compensation, well, how do you do that mm -hmm. without looking at 8, 9, 10 plus percent tuition increases if you need to impact employee compensation to the degree that you hope to? Yeah. In our case, what we have been focused on now for at least five years is efficiency of operation. We have a, a thought that we share often up in the business office when we consider this subject. 
that if there's something that we can do and save on expenses that doesn't impact the quality of what we do with our students and for our employees, it is fair game <laughs> to look for for savings. And you do that often enough and you think about the careful allocation and in some cases reallocation of financial resources, you can do the same or even more with less expenditure. And we have tried to use that approach in addition to modest tuition increases, typically between 4 and 5% for each of the last several years, so that we aren't looking at massive increases in tuition, but yet still at the same time are able to move the needle in material ways for employee compensation. And to clarify, for the last five years, as I understand, the rate of salary increase for faculty and staff has actually outpaced the rate of tuition increase. That is correct. Which, for the reasons you just described, shouldn't really make sense financially unless we're doing really trying to do some extraordinary things. Yeah. Under normal circumstances, that's like having the goldfish outgrow the bowl. <laughs> right. Eventually, it will. You right. feed it enough and it'll outgrow the bowl. That's right. Now, eventually, I think it's fair to acknowledge that we won't be able to continue to look to operational savings in part to help fund some of our decision-making around employee compensation. Yeah. But you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. For the last five years, that has been a significant contributor that has allowed us to make some really significant progress in the form of employee compensation. I'll also add that part of our consideration is retirement. We have one of the most generous retirement programs of any private school that I know of in the state of California. We have a medical insurance program. A lot of folks might not know this. We self-insure our own medical program, and it is a phenomenal program, and we're investing there. We're investing in apartment buildings in which employees are able to reside and accumulate savings. So it's a multifaceted approach that we're taking. But to go back to your original question, there is absolutely an emphasis and concerted effort on base compensation. And we have made some really incredible gains there. Yeah. It is complex because employees have different needs, right? There are some employees who are still trying to pay off college debt. Yeah. There are some employees who are trying to buy their first home. Um, there are some employees trying to deal with childcare issues to try to have a menu of benefits as diverse as our faculty and staff are is quite yeah. difficult. And so one thing we can do on a broad base is just try to increase pay as much as we possibly can within reason to help a faculty and staff member, whoever they are and wherever they are in their life, help to pay off those expenses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that for those reasons that you just mentioned, that's exactly why our primary focus has been around core compensation. Yeah. And, and let me also put in a plug for philanthropy. I mean, certainly tuition is the, the one dial that you can turn when you're trying to make the finances of the school work and you and the board are trying to set tuition. One other way that makes a huge impact on this, obviously, is annual giving yes. and the growth of our endowment through investment, but also through, through Yeah, absolutely. I would add on that there is no way that we could have accomplished what we've done over these recent years without philanthropic support. So now I want to get to you. Actually, you are not only the project lead for River Park, you're not only the CFO, you're an alum of Harvard-Westlake. And um, because you graduated in the class of 93, which uh, for folks who don't know is the year, the second, I guess, full year of the merged 
School of Harvard and Westlake. You started at Harvard School for Boys. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your Harvard School and Harvard-Westlake experience. I appreciate that question, and I'm going to answer that with a little bit of of, of chagrin here. (laughs) I was the kind of kid who every spare minute that you would throw my way, I was running around and either playing basketball with my friends. There was a period back then when ultimate Frisbee was a thing. Yeah. And so I was on the field. I was just a very active young guy, showing up for class dirty and sweaty. (laughs) I apologize for any of my classmates who are listening or teachers I had back then, some of whom are still here at the school. I was the run around, get my body exercised, and then sit in that classroom and try to keep up with uh, whatever the lesson of the day was. Yeah. So uh, enjoying it all, you you might phrase it that way. And to this day, you're an outdoorsman. You enjoy being outdoors with your your families. You enjoy athletics. You're an active person. Do you trace some of that back to the ability to do so kind of at Harvard School and Harvard West? Yeah, I think um, people who are used to exercising, there is a level of feeling refreshed and clarity of thinking Mm. that comes from having exercised and being outdoors yeah. and the intake of oxygen within a natural setting. I know that sounds a little a little woo-woo, I think is the expression. Yeah. I don't know. Is that the right? It takes us back to River Park a little bit. It takes bit, us to back to River Park, yeah. yeah. But to clear your head, to burn off that extra energy, and then to sit down and concentrate on something that is quite academically intense, that's what I enjoyed back then and absolutely has informed how I live my life as an adult. Yeah. So after Harvard-Westlake, you went to Pomona. And I'm curious if there were any teachers, professors there that helped to influence you to become the professional you are, the person you are. Yeah. The two that come to mind would be an economics professor and a track coach that I had. Although I, I want to acknowledge that I mentioned earlier that there are still some employees here that were kind enough to have me under their tutelage as a, as a student uh, hmm. back in the day. Um, Jonas Kulsbergen is one. Catherine Holmes Chuba is another. Wow. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that uh, the story that I'm telling about college, I, I probably could have applied back to Coach Kulsbergen. But since you asked about my college experience, I'll, I'll attribute it to my collegiate track coach. Yeah. But beginning with the economics, I've always been a quantitative-minded person. Throw me some numbers, formula. Nowadays, love me some good Excel. But this economics professor was all about writing Mm. and was the most precise editor that I had ever experienced and taught me the importance of convincing well-thought-out written communication. And I think it not that I considered it back then, but you think about now with modern communications and email, social media platforms, <laughs> emails, yeah. so much of what we experience are little snippets. And I'm not talking about the specific number of characters that Twitter would support on any given day, right. stuff like that. But just generally speaking, we communicate in snippets. And to be able to communicate effectively, whether it's in snippets or whether it's in longer prose, I think is really fundamental whatever your profession is or whatever you do in life, uh, whether it's writing an email to a friend or whether it's turning in something that's work-related, putting that on paper is, is critical and do so in a way that 
conveys your intent. And do you feel like that's particularly important as a CFO of a school, being that the people with whom you communicate on a daily basis aren't just the folks within the business office. Of course, it might be department chairs, folks in the athletics department, folks in the advancement world, in the admission world, board of trustees, the variety of people with whom you communicate who have to sort of understand what you're talking about in non-quantitative terms. Yeah. Do you feel like that skill that was developed at Pomona is particularly important here? It's not just important. I think it's vital. Yeah. For an organization of our, our size, we're a $100 million annual operation, 325 or more full-time employees. We issue thousands of remittances to vendors over the course of the year. It's a large operation. Yeah. And as the CFO, there's so much going on that you have to be a clear communicator because you can't be involved in everything. When we're corresponding, there's always the immediate of what we're trying to communicate. Yes, go ahead and pursue this idea or Maybe we should defer maintenance on this particular project. There's an immediacy of that, right? The question that's at hand. But so much of what we also have to communicate is the philosophy or a broader principle so that we don't have to be involved in each and every decision that is being made or each and every question that comes up. And that can only be done through correspondence that is well thought out understandable, and to the degree warranted, concise. So yeah, I would say it, it is critical. The other piece that I would add is my experience with the school is that it is rare that we make a decision without explaining a rationale. Yeah. And whether that's to our students, to our parents, in conversation with our board of trustees, it's a fuller conversation that takes place. Yeah. And that also requires the ability to put into email or put onto paper the fullness of your thought. Yeah. The other professor you mentioned was a track coach. Yes, a track coach. It has nothing to do with the activity that I undertook as a, as a track athlete. The lessons that I picked up that are applicable today are around management of time and understanding how your body, your physical body, as well as your mind react to adversity and how to manage your reaction to those situations. The importance of team. These are all lessons that, of course, you learn in a classroom and in your casual conversation, but you experience them in, or at least I experienced them most pronouncedly in an athletic environment. I participated in track all four years of college. Mm -hmm. It was Division Three, so don't get me wrong. It was nothing that would set any records. Yeah. Um, but these are life lessons, in essence, yeah. that you take with you from those experiences. Yeah. Notions of adversity, notions of, of failure, of, yeah. of kind of coming back from being down, an injury, a loss. Exactly. Those are profound lessons from sports, Ab absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The satisfaction of accomplishment. Right. Success. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Maybe for me, it was all, it right. was all downers. And, if anyone saw me run, know. They'd, they'd know it was mostly failure yeah. on my part. Yeah. But. but we can celebrate both sides of the yeah. coin. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So then you, you graduate from Pomona. I understand you were an economics major. 
take me from sort of graduating with a degree in economics to finding yourself at Harvard-Westlake yeah. and who some of the people were in the interim that steered you toward All this right. direction. So economics major at a liberal arts college. Right. Lots of options to you, but they're usually two, right? <laughs> yep. Investment banking, management consulting. Yep. And uh, I chose the latter. I went into management consulting and spent time in that field. And it was really amazing. I mean, if I'm being quite candid, the experiences that I had during those years were well beyond what I had the true qualifications to be able to undertake with reliability. I was learning at a pace that was just astounding, exposed to conversations and business environments that I had never seen before. And you just learn so much from those opportunities. Yeah. But at the same time, as I existed within that career, for myself, and this is not meant to say that this is the same course that everybody has. By all means, there are people who, who love that field. But for me, I always found it a little transitory. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though that over the course of my career, I wanted something where I could be much more closely connected to my work. Yeah. To see the results of it. We talked about failures in the track context to be able to experience the, the highs and the lows and to learn from, from both. And after a while, for me, again, I didn't feel like consulting was going to offer that over the long run, the full course of my career. So it brought me to a conversation with another Harvard-Westlake connection, and that is my predecessor, Rob Levin. Rob Levin. Yep. <laughs> Who was also my eighth grade basketball coach. Rob and I sat down over lunch and we were talking and he's a very patient man, was then and is now and full of wisdom and insight and a desire to help. And after listening to me, he says, you know what, David, a lot of the things that you're describing is what you enjoy about your career. That's what I get to do every day. Mm. And have you thought about working for schools? And I'm looking at him. I don't know what was on my fork that I was about to put in my mouth to, to eat over lunch, but... I know I paused and looked at him and said, Rob, I have never thought about that, but it is a brilliant idea. Huh. And three months later, that's the career that I began and have been a part of ever since, this now being my 10th year at Harvard-Westlake. Wow. And so now that you, you've been here for 10 years, you've seen the school adapt and change, what do you love most about the work that you do at Harvard-Westlake? I think what it comes down to, Eli, is that it is just the sheer variety of what I'm able to experience and enjoy that make all the difference. We're sitting here today recording a podcast. It's my first podcast. I've never been interviewed before for You're something doing great. like this. Thank you. <laughs> Earlier today, I'm on a Zoom with our geotechnical engineers for River Park yeah. talking about bedrock stratification. Before that, I'm actually, coincidentally enough, was talking about employee compensation yeah. for next year and the contract process that we go through um, with our employees to get them signed up for another year uh, as a faculty or staff member. Working with students, there are no two days that are alike. I'm not even sure I could find even a segment of a single day that is like anything other. 
And to me, that variety and being involved, not just a part of, of an organization, but being part of an organization as tight-knit and as enjoyable as Harvard Westlake, and to experience all of that, that's what keeps me coming back every single day. Yeah. Well, let me add, you know, you made a good point about cost savings and how you and your team are such careful stewards of the school's resources and trying to make those savings when you can. I think as an employee here, it probably also feels good to make the investments that you make too in people. And we talked about compensation, but that also has to do with professional development opportunities that are available to people that can go to conferences, that can travel, financial aid, which we didn't even get to, and the type of transformational opportunities that are made available to the most talented kids. The investments were making new investments in student wellness and support, given the issues so many young people are facing kind of post-pandemic. That's got to feel good, I imagine, too. Yeah, absolutely. The image that comes to my mind is the financial statement that we present to the board of trustees. There are, within our accounting system, there are hundreds of accounts to classify revenue and expenses. What we present to our board of trustees is 15 line items, revenue and expenses. Employee professional development is exceedingly important, but it's not one of the largest items within our budget. We talked about our our largest budgetary expense earlier in the form of employee compensation. Right. But nonetheless, it shows up among those very few line items that we present to our board of trustees just because we feel it is that important to support within our budget, but also monitor to make sure that our employees are getting the most benefit from those resources. Yeah. Well, I would just say this is all a personal story. I remember when I had just started at Harvard West, like I was very young, I was in my early 20s and uh, Ed Hu and the advancement team invited me to go to a conference. Yeah. And uh, and it was at Williams College. It was across the country. And I didn't grow up in a house with a ton of money where we traveled uh, freely all the time. And the fact that Harvard Westlake was going to send me on a plane and put me up, and that was such a big deal to me that that the school was investing in me as a young person. I think about it now, and now I'm in the position where I can help to invest in young employees in our yeah. office, yeah. and it feels amazing that those are available. And we could say, you know, we're going to put you on a plane. You're going to come to New York. Yeah. You're going to go to a conference. You're going to meet some colleagues and maybe have dinner with the team. Yeah, and, absolutely. Right. You want to pursue an advanced degree in your education? We'll help pay for it. Exactly. Right. So- before we go, as you know, you, you are a listener of the supporting cast, which I greatly appreciate. There are a few get-to-know-you questions at the end of every episode. They relate to L.A. Yeah. We are known for our movies, our food, and for our climate. So, David Wheel, what is your favorite movie? The two movies that come to mind and that I actually have seen with, with my two boys who are 10 and 12 would be older, older I'm saying relatively, uh, based on my own age, sports movies. Mm. For example, the two that I enjoy the most are The Natural mm. and Chariots of Fire. Oh. Yep. We've seen the something much lighter like you know, Major League, um, but the, the ones that really resonate with me the most are movies like that. Those two. Yeah. What's your favorite meal in LA? My Could favorite be. meal. Yeah. I'm a little quirky in that I like to explore. So there aren't that many places that I have been to enough times to say that that was my favorite. If I had to pick, though, it's actually not a restaurant. It is sitting out. I live in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. So sitting out for sunset at 
the beach. And I'm not sure if you have friends who are really into camping and have all these Supply. special supplies. supplies. Yeah, right. like, uh, like I, I get excited for the convenient and compact beachside happy hour type equipment. And that's where my family and I love to spend our time more often than than any other place for a meal. And so whether it's uh, just bringing out some simple sandwiches or something more complex that we prepared, I just love sitting by the edge of the water, looking out over, seeing the sun go down, having my my uh, two boys with their friends playing somewhere up or down the, the beach. That's probably the happiest space that we spend for a meal. Well, I think you've already answered it, but the third is what's your favorite place in LA and would that be it? I think that would be it, yeah. yeah. We're, we're pretty active, so I would say a close second is is hiking, uh, but that takes us all over. And much like with restaurants, we're always looking for a new destination to go to. So uh, coming back to the same spot, yeah, you're right. It probably would be sitting at the edge of the Pacific. Yeah, and and I've seen you. Over the pandemic, I was yeah. at the beach with my family, one of the few places we could go that was safe back in 2020 or so, and we ran into you and your family at yeah. one point. Yep, that was, a, that was a lot of fun. So very last question. Um, you mentioned you were the parent of two boys. I am the parent of two girls. I have a four-year-old now and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Right. What is your best parenting advice? My best parenting advice is not even my own advice. It was actually given to me, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it that way, fairly recently, and that is let your children lead. Mm. Right? I have goals for my my boys. You have goals for your kids. Sure. And yeah, maybe we can influence them a little bit, but let them lead. Let them express their interest and be right there with them to help experience it. Let them lead would hmm. be my best advice. Well, we've been the great beneficiaries of letting you lead at Harvard-Westlake <laughs> for the last 10 years. Pardon the segue. Um, very but, clever. Um, very appreciative of your leadership on River Park and as CFO. And again, the great investments the school has made in me, in our team, the team that I manage at the school. And uh, thank you so much for joining the supporting cast. Absolutely. It's been an honor. Thanks, Eli. Thanks, Eli.